Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Simon Mills. I'm a senior associate at the Zien Group, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's FS Club webinar, where we're going to be discussing Pongamia, the transformative tree. I'm joined by two distinguished speakers this morning, Dr. Benjamin War and Rabbi El Fadel, respectively the director and CEO of Phyla Earth, a small but rapidly growing company which is focused on realizing commercial opportunities to meet carbon removal and biodiversity targets, whilst delivering a host of benefits that aim to meet the UN sustainability goals. Now, as always, the agenda for this webinar is very simple. Following my introduction, our speakers are going to make their presentation, and then we'll move on to the Q&A discussion phase. Now, I'm afraid that you're all muted, but you are able to submit your questions to the chat tool on the right-hand side of your screen. Please do chip in at any point of the proceedings. I'm going to be collating your questions and we'll put them to our speakers at the end. Now, as with all of our FS Club webinars, we're going to be recording this session and you're going to be able to access the slides and presentation at a later date. But before we move on, I really must thank FS Club members who opened up our webinar series to the public. With their help since March of 2020, we've held over 400 of these events on topics as diverse as money laundering, the metaverse and high salinity agriculture. The FS Club is the premier global executive knowledge network for technology and finance, where members and their guests can meet over a glass of wine to debate key issues which impact on financial services, technology and society. It's very much like a 21st century version of the city's 17th century coffee houses. And so, without further ado, I would like to introduce the first of today's speakers. Benjamin, tell us about Pongamia. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for such a professional introduction, uh, Simon. Um, I'm going to introduce you uh, the Pongamia tree, and sp specifically the elite Pongamia tree developed by Phyla. The presentation is going to follow this structure. I'm going to introduce to you the scale, the scale of the shared challenge and the need for effective finance to uh, meet the challenge. I'm going to introduce some of the challenges that farmers face um, in, a, in a general way and then focus on how gender inequality exacerbates the problem for women. I'm then going to give you a, a brief introduction to the Pongamere tree and agroforestry systems that it can fit into and then provide a contextualized overview of how Pongamere agroforestry can generate productivity enhancement and risk reduction. So the Pongamere tree is from a semi-arid environment. It's a dryland species, and drylands are seasonally dry and brittle, right? And this is uh, makes uh, those landscapes a particular challenge uh, at present. Um, over three billion people live in such landscapes, and uh, they are severely under threat from desertification. Studies by WRI have found, however, that each dollar invested into such uh, ecosystems can have positive returns in the range of seven to thirty dollars. Now, what do we need to do to unlock the finance that's required 
to regenerate these landscapes and to make them more productive and specifically to increase the revenues of the populations living there, reduce the risks that they face from climate change and ecosystem degradation. So the challenges are very much shared. Um, we have local communities in the landscape who are essential in the challenge to reverse land degradation and fight climate change. Um, and as we understand, climate change is a global issue that threatens uh, Western and developed economies um, too. So the challenge is very much of a shared one uh, where the financial community, public sector donors uh, are required to raise funds to invest into these landscapes. Um, the amounts raised, sadly, are insufficient at present. Um, estimates range from about $16 billion uh, that has been committed. Um, but there are two challenges. The challenges are to increase the size of that uh, investment. Uh, estimates of the investment gap uh, are, are massive, some $300 billion a year required to reverse land degradation and combat desertification and by so doing uh, lock carbon from the atmosphere into soils in a productive manner. The second major challenge is to ensure that these finances are dispersed in a, a way that's, infect, if, that's effective and target the communities and deliver the outputs that are required. Um, and, and this means that projects need to be highly contextualized uh, and they have to be more than just restorative, they should be regenerative and in many ways productive, creating the opportunities for employment for a growing population, as well as matching food, energy and water requirements uh, in a manner that's uh, sustainable. So we can think of this as a kind of a, a, a very a linked process and uh, the old cliche of think global, act local is increasingly relevant. It's the local partners who understand the activities on the ground that will um, uh, be able to deliver on the uh, effective distribution of finance um, and it's the global finance community has got to identify profitable investments, effective disbursement mechanisms and projects that are going to deliver on their climate change potential. Now, uh, the mechanism required to ensure that those investments are profitable and effective is essentially to enhance the productivity of those investments and to reduce the risk uh, involved. And that's very much the focus of our work at Phyla and one of the reasons why we've identified and worked with Pongamir for so long to deliver this system. So let's look at the farmer challenges. And these are challenges that are shared by both male and female farmers. Um, and we've already discussed two of the major issues at the top there, which is access to finance, which the corollary is of disbursement of finance. Um, now, the, the reasons for limited access to finance are, are multiple. And, and I could have made a diagram that looked very much like the system dynamics diagram of the Afghan war. Um, but it would be um, hard to identify where the key linkages are and what the, the critical uh, causes and impacts uh, are. So I've simplified it greatly here. Right? So farmers are unable to access finance because they have a lack of collateral. They have a high perceived risk and lack of available funds themselves. The impact of that is that to uh, provide seed and fertilizer inputs to their annual farming activities, 
they're often forced to uh, deforest and sell charcoal. That's a guaranteed market that they have. Um, another challenge, they uh, lack access to equitable markets. The transport is difficult. They're often um, subject to profiteering by uh, briefcase buyers. And as such, they often secure only low prices, meaning that they have typically low revenues. In Zambia per hectare, an average revenue could be $400, um, but there's a cost associated with that, and often labor is not included. They lack access to advisory, soils advisory. They lack access to training in new uh, agricultural systems that could help them to reduce costs. They lack access to quality inputs, and they lack access to value-adding facilities that could stimulate local supply of important products such as animal feed, fodder, fertilizers, etc. Uh, the causes for these limited risk sharing and underfunded agricultural extension services, there are many. But the result is that, for example, maize yields in Zambia have stagnated at about one and a half tons per hectare uh, for the last 30 years in small farmers' fields, despite increasing quantities of fertilizer being applied. And with the situation of the last two years, those synthetic fertilizer prices have skyrocketed. The synthetic fertilizer use, the inappropriate systems, uh, uh, monocrops, and lack of advisory uh, cause uh, soil degradation uh, and increasingly lower margins to farmers. When taken at scale, uh, these activities, deforestation, soil degradation, lead to ecosystem-wide degradation, onto which you then apply climate change and increased uh, prevalence of extreme weather events, dr long dry periods that characterize dryland areas, which can be over six months, and then sudden very heavy rainfall. You're getting flooding, and you can see in the lower left corner there, uh, maize fields this year that were subject to, to heavy flooding. Now, it doesn't need me to say that when you have a tree in that system, it's less heavily impacted. On the right, you can see uh, typical deforestation for charcoaling and opening up new agricultural areas. Low yields, if you want to increase supply, you just have to increase the land area, and that exacerbates the problem further. Now, onto these set of challenges. Uh, female farmers have uh, additional challenges that exacerbate the, the, the inequalities. Lending into farmers, um, and this is a percentage of participation, uh, at a national average, only 16% of farmers took loans from a wide variety of formal and informal sources. The difference between men and women is not so significant, 2%. But you can see on the lower left, a very low participation in outgrower schemes relative to males. Um, but uh, evidence that they are benefiting more from community savings groups and clearly where where companies entering the market uh, in, a, in, in loans uh, for farmer activities have focused on uh, female head of household farms. Um, and if we look on the right, very often farmers will access finance by doing um, part-time work or temporary work in industry. And I've grouped here together industry to mean mining, quarrying, the energy industry, uh, and all of those sectors. And you can see here the disparity is enormous. And very often, um, men and women, they, they like to own their own businesses in, in Zambia. I'm, I'm often going to refer to Zambia because that's where I live and where I can give the most uh, contextualized inputs. But um, they, they like to have their own businesses. They, they understand that it's a, 
uh, a risk reduction mechanism and the ability to work in industry, uh, earn some revenue is uh, one mechanism by which people save and then make their own small businesses. So we've got a, a set of challenges that are exacerbated for women, including the fact that they typically tend to be farming more marginal land. Uh, and when it comes to selling their crops, they have a lower level of com commercial participation as well. So they're getting even lower prices or typically they're, they're, they're providing for subsistence food requirements and they're getting no money at all. So now let me bring you to how uh, Pongamia pinata has characteristics that can um, address uh, many of these issues. So Pongamia has been grown uh, in southern India for over a thousand years. It's in the Sanskrit, it's uh, part of the Ayurvedic medicine um, portfolio. It's highly drought tolerant, um, identified in regions with uh, low rainfall, 650 millimeters on average. That means there's some years where it's much lower. It's nitrogen fixing. It doesn't need synthetic fertilizers. It fixes its own nitrogen and brings that into the ecosystem. By the way, nitrogen is the limiting factor on fixing carbon in soils. It stores carbon above ground and below ground and contributes to improving soil capacities to store carbon. It's both salinity and flood tolerant, historically being a mangrove species. Um, uh, so you can see in that previous image, it would have been fine. Um, it's also non-invasive um, and it's a dryland species that's now got a, a spread globally across much of Southeast Asia, Australia, um, Southern Africa, um, and, uh, and that is developing under um, careful um, uh, observation. Now, Pongamia has a, uh, its value comes from its products as well as its ability to interact in, in agroforestry systems. It produces a pod. That pod can be separated into a pod shell. The pod shell forms about 60% of the total mass and seeds. Those seeds can be pressed into a vegetable oil. That vegetable oil can be used as a biofuel or a sustainable aviation fuel. The seed cake meal is high protein, very similar to soy and that can be used uh, for fodder or as a protein isolate. When used as a fodder, it reduces cattle methane emissions. Um, the seed cake and vegetable oil both contain biocompounds, which can be extracted, and these are high value compounds that can be used in cosmetics, in agriculture to provide biological alternatives to synthetic biocides, nitrification inhibitors to coat fertilizer, um, and health uses as well, given the Ayurvedic past. The pod shell, which can be processed at village level or at rural aggregation hub level, can be an alternative to charcoal and an income source for rural communities. It can similarly be composted and turned into a biochar and there's lots more complicated routes uh, to market and value addition. Now, what's special about Phyla's Pongamia? Um, when forests were cleared in southern India, the pongamia was left because of its utility. Here you can see lower left, it's in a farmer's field, it's, rid it's right next to the farmer's field. Uh, it's not having any negative interactions on their yield there, otherwise they would have removed it. And you can see I've highlighted one small area. The tree cross-pollinates. Um, you need to identify elite mother trees and then develop them from there. And here you can see our identification process of elite pongamia that's happened across the whole of India has looked at over 100,000 trees and brought together a portfolio of elite 
high yielding trees uh, and uh, 75 of them. Now in the wild, um, like I said, less than 3% of wild trees are elite candidates. We observe them for pest and disease resilience. Uh, they have uh, uh, yields that are in excess of 40 kg of pod per tree. It's about two kg per meter squared. And so our work has been to identify these elites, build them together as a portfolio, and then identify methods to propagate them uh, and develop the deep tap roots um, that they require to, to be robust in very dry climates. So our unique cultivar technology, what does it do uh, that's better than alternatives? Well, let's look firstly at the oil production. Um, it could go into existing agricultural lands that have been cleared as a reforestation activity. Uh, it can integrate with intercrops. It can integrate with na native tree and shrub species. Um, and when it does so, uh, it can produce oils and biofuels which have a negative carbon um, uh, footprint compared to uh, alternatives. We've got the Monji average. We've got soy oil and palm oil. Both of these measurements here are uh, assuming that the palm oil has been um, put into deforested systems. And then it brings a great advantage as being a perennial tree crop rather than an annual crop. Now, if we go back to those first slides, you can see that each year the farmers have to gain the revenue, the income to buy seed and fertilizer. They have to spend a lot of time preparing the field. And with climate uncertainty, if they get their timing wrong or if floods happen, they're gonna lose all of those inputs. And it's a self-exacerbating negative feedback loop because they got those inputs typically by charcoaling, right? And so once they've lost those inputs, they have to charcoal again, they have to try uh, for a second round, and typically they're planting late, they get low yields. These are the risks of annual uh, cropping. And the outgrower system, the contract farming system that's built on the back of it, doesn't necessarily share the risk. It's a year-to-year -year procedure. There's not necessarily a long-term relationship. Uh, now, Pongamir as a perennial tree species, the investment is up front. You put in the trees, you can have an intercrop, you can carry on doing your previous activities, um, depending on the tree density that we select for the environment. The moment it rains, the tree is ready to accept that water. It's binding the soil, it can be flooded. The risk is significantly reduced. And on the other side, if we compare the potential yields to soybean, it's like vertical soy, right? So once mature, which happens at about 15 years, um, and the growth of yield is uh, like an S-curve with an exponential as it reaches an adolescent period, um, yields of protein per hectare and yields of oil inputs into biodiesel production are typically double uh, those of which can be seen in, uh, in a soybean production system with reduced risk and all of the benefits of being able to store carbon above ground and below ground, which are not possible with soy. So Phyla has developed um, a system that enables farmers to shift towards a perennial crop production system with intercrops and with uh, additional investments into uh, honey production as one example of how uh, we develop multifunctional landscapes we could also add into their livestock production because the trees, the leaves are non-palatable. So animals don't eat them uh, and they bring nitrogen into the ecosystem, a green fodder from leaf prunings, and they produce a shade 
that encourages grass growth underneath the trees. So we could have looked at the, the livestock system, which is clearly very interesting for, for Southern and uh, for Latin America, um, for reforestation activities there. And what we've uh, developed is a system which enables us to uh, put 50 trees into a farmer's field to maintain a relationship with them over the period up to which the Pongamia trees start to produce pod through intercropping and improving their annual intercropping yields through the uh, provision of biological soil amendments that are very carefully developed by our, our partner uh, our partners with specialities in that domain um, and we also critically bring education to address the advisory uh, uh, deficit um, and you can see how on the top left here these capitalization loans to farmers over the first five years and you can see their breakdown to the right over the first 15 years how they shift from a blended facility providing the trees uh, a carbon prepayment, which is effectively the first five years of carbon sequestration through improved soil uh, uh, sequestration and tree growth. Um, that's delivered earlier on so that it can reimburse the farmers. And at no point do the farmers go negative net income in this situation. And as we develop intercrop yields, as the trees grow, carbon revenues continue. And the, the, the standard trade finance they're producing something we need the pod and the food intercrops and we're trading with them in a in a legitimate and equitable way all right they maintain ownership of their land in this small farmer outgrower model um, we're not land grabbing what we're effectively doing is enable them to capitalize and pay back through enhanced productivity risk reduction and in the future uh, in revenue streams for example from biodiversity enhancement, etc. Uh, the number of benefiting households in this example, built on a 20 hectare propagation facility that costs 1.2 million, it can reach over 400,000 farmers in uh, by year 2030 at 50 trees per hectare. Payments are made to the farmers, their revenues increase, and production quantities of products that are useful across food and energy domains um, are, are increased. All right, let me go move forward. So you can see, um, and I, I'm sure you can focus in on this uh, at another date, how we've addressed these solutions, access to finance through capitalization of farmers, access to equitable markets through off-take contracts, access to advisory through an education system that's funded by productivity improvements, improving soil health and fertility through a perennial agroforestry biodiverse system, bringing honey and pollinators into the ecosystem to, uh, to build uh, the ability to, to develop a full land cover um, and building these intercarbon projects um, such that they uh, can uh, fix and conserve significant amounts of um, carbon whilst regenerating the hydrological function of the landscape. And here you can see how an outgrow extension system can be built around activities that link into mine regeneration, into cement plant provision, for biomass and into livestock grazing. Uh, and this can create significant jobs as well as entrepreneurship opportunities for the farmers. So here we enable investment, we increase the productivity and reduce the risk, and we develop markets for farmers by linking them to uh, the wider global need for climate change action, food, proteins, and energy. 
Thank you. I'm yeah. now going to show a, a short video. Yeah. That would be great. What if there was a way to restore degraded landscapes? And what if the solution provided sustainable livelihoods, was able to feed people and power communities and economies? Phyla elite Pongamia trees produce food and fuel and fertilize themselves. They can grow in regions of the world where rainfall is limited and where climate change threatens agricultural production systems. Phyla's elite Pongamia trees build healthy soils. They remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they bring back biodiversity to landscapes that have been devastated by deforestation, monocropping and mining. Pongamia has uh, incredible uses in rehabilitating mine sites because of its metal toxicity thresholds. It can start an ecosystem going, which is often what we need. So growing a plant in an so ecosystem that's tolerant to the soil conditions that other plants can't bear allows us to start generating carbon and mycorrhizal networks and microbial processes and litter decomposition processes including nutrient cycling within the soils. And Pongamia may become one of the key tools in rehabilitating and remediating toxic legacy waste from mining. Dr. MVR Prasad, member of the Phyla team, has been instrumental in the commercialization of Phyla elite Pongamia agroforestry systems. Namely 1972 and 1974, and 1979, they were all very bad years. 500 villages, they escaped the pangs of the drought. And each of these villages had a lot of plantations of Pongamia around their homes, as well as around their fields and all that. That is the beauty of Pongamia. In spite of acute drought, the tree doesn't succumb. <laughs> Phyla is unique, having established operational facilities in both India and Sub-Saharan Africa. We have successfully grafted close to a million elite Pongamia in one production cycle. And that too, with absolute precision quality, with standard operating procedures, ensuring that it's completely compliant and completely world-class. The Phyla team have been working for over 25 years to build a portfolio of high-yielding varieties that are able to cope with the toughest of environments. We have developed close ties with domain experts from leading universities in the UK to develop processes and products to maximise the value of each seed. Green technologies which we have developed in, at the centre, uh, how to maximise the yield of Karanjin, uh, Pongamol, and which will help us in developing some novel products for cosmetic industry, food industry, uh, as well as pharmaceutical industry. Our facilities in India and Southern Africa are gearing up to produce one and a half million saplings next year, then scale to meet a growing demand worldwide.
Thank you, everybody. Fantastic. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating talk, and I can see that we have uh, a lot of questions from our audience, but as chairman, the privilege of asking the first one falls to me. Uh, so, I, I believe that uh, Pongamia has a high degree of genotypic and phenotypic variability because of the wide variety of conditions that it grows in. How can you make sure that the farmers get the right variety of seeds for their growing conditions? Thank you, Simon. So there's two points to this. Um, Pongamia trees cross-pollinate, which means that you can have identified a high-yielding elite variety. And elite means it's pest and disease resilient as well. But when you plant the seed, it can be a low-yielding variety, unfortunately. So the work of Filer has been to identify a portfolio uh, of over 75 elite trees from uh, a large number, 100,000 trees we've observed, uh, and they've been filtered for yield and uh, pest and disease resilience. And we've then developed uh, systems and methods to propagate those through grafting, which ensures uh, correct deep taproot is produced. Now, the second part of that question is uh, genetic diversity within a farmer's field. So the 75 varieties can be planted into a single hectare, and that provides enormous biological diversity in times of uh, changing climate. The rains can come early, the rains can come late. And within that 75 varietal portfolio, the farmer yields are effectively averaged out across that period. And if we compare to, for example, to a hybrid soybean field, which has one single variety in a farmer's field, and across the whole landscape of farmers, they're often, often all using the same variety. Now, soy, fortunately, is quite pest and disease resilient. But with other crops, that makes them very vulnerable to pest and disease. So our farmers benefit from flexibility in yield, in yield response to different weather conditions, but also a diversified genetic um, ability to uh, resist pest and disease. So these trees are genetically diverse. So we're not going to see, you know, the equivalent of the potato famine, for example, due to, to lack of, of genetic diversity. No, yeah, very fortunately, you know, we're sourcing from a wild population of trees that's massive. So even within that population, there, there is, there's, it, there are features and characteristics that can be considered valuable in different years. Now, forecasting what the weather will be, uh, that's the big challenge. What we know is that with the 75 varieties and those that will add to that, that there'll be uh, the, the regional varieties necessary to respond uh, in concert. Um, with regards to the, the, the work you're, you're doing with farmers, are you educating them on, on soil? health you know are there other probiotic solutions that could add to, to soil and animal and human health and productivity and so on that you could you could promote as part of your your work yeah very much so so i, I operate a, a small spectroscopy lab here in zambia which is the birthplace of our soil interventions into pongamia systems and uh, we are developing um, with uh, a very interesting group of partners and some very interesting developments occurring at the moment to identify how we can maximize the soil plant uh, microbial and fungal interactions that occur um, and that's a lot of the work we've been doing with professor mark tibbett at the university of reading is to understand 
how on earth are these trees able to cope with 7,000 part per million copper and still modulate symbiotically with mycorrhiza? Um, so there's a, a, a lot of work that's uh, to be done. What we know is that over a thousand years of practice uh, and actual activity within the Indian subcontinent, that these things do work. Now it's a matter of understanding them, of profiling them, and of uh, developing, them, developing them further into the commercial space. Moving on to the more commercial side, have you uh, have you considered applying some fintech solutions to assisting your farmers? So, on the microfinance side, microinsurance side, uh, providing market data, e-cooperatives, that kind of thing. Yeah, we've interacted very heavily with the farmers over the past three years. Now you've got to remember, about 95% of them do not have a smartphone. And the killer is the bundle, the, 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 the finance they need for the bundles. So we're building a system that's based on the, the, the real technology behind the mobile phone, which is the ability to speak to somebody. And we can make those calls. And then we commun can communicate in um, the local languages and bring peer-to-peer -peer learning systems to, to bear. Um, with regards to the um, uh, potential for microfinance, yeah, we think that's critical. What we want to see is that the, the, the loans that we make in, into pharma systems are paid for by the productivity of those specific technologies that we bring to bear in their fields. But what we've seen from that data is that um, female farmers are, are really benefiting from their own savings. And they're putting that, that they have an understanding of the granularity of the diversity of business and production models that they can adopt at small and large scale far broader than we'll ever be able to see and we don't want them to become you know we don't want debt driven growth here what we want is them to be able to through productivity enhancement save within their communities and reduce the outflow of money from those communities to town and then internationally as well so it's all about stimulating uh, initiating a capitalization onto which the farmers can build themselves and make their own uh, choices uh, and develop their own sources of financing. But as, as this progresses, and I think phone adoption will get greater, um, we're pushing onto um, various options for them to uh, be able to access microfinance around specific uh, soil amendments, um, which will be biological, all of them. I know that MPs have been doing some really interesting work on on banking the unbanked, so it would definitely be worth uh, having a look at what MPs are doing with regards to micro payments and and micro transactions. Sorry, Rabbi, you were you, I thought you were yeah. going to intervene. I, I, I just need to add to Ben because there are multitude of sort of technologies and fintech that we are involved in at a very early stage to make sure from the proper holistic and the granular mapping of what we're seeing in terms of the existing assets at the moment and how we're going to take it all the way through making sure that we are reporting we are managing we are operating all the way through throughout the whole sort of life cycle of the tree every single part of that we are trying to be engaged in certain technology that will anchor this including as ben was talking about in what sort of technologies that will connect so in, in a way we try to just bring in into the sdgs the 17 goals every single part of it a technology that linked to that sort of tree some of these sort of uh, uh, technologies we quite far 
in 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 developing but it's again it's it's a, it's a long sort of journey but we, we we've succeeded in breaking into creating opportunities rather than just looking at it as a risk one side of it looking at the pattern and reading the pattern from a different angle so it's a different dimension where rather than being risky is becoming actually it's a pattern that can be read where the whole financial industry will start to plug into that very one and engaging number of the female gender into this knowing that this is a quantum leap in the productivity and the insurance of of the business does the plant suffer from any particular pests, either in the forms of, of, of insects or fungi or, or, or even birds taking the, 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 the fruit? Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's fortunate. It's uh, very unpalatable, so livestock won't eat it. So you can imagine this in the Brazil deforestation zones, uh, the drier areas. Uh, once the forest has gone, you could put this system back in and then you can have livestock underneath and it's producing high protein fodder, which reduces methane emissions. What a perfect mix, right? Um, now, in terms of pests and disease, so the, the, the candidate plus trees that we had were, were multiple, many thousands of them, and they had high yields, but then they were removed if they were observed to have too much of a pest, specific pests. Um, it, it does attract, um, insects yeah and 50 percent of all of the insects visiting the tree are pollinators specifically bees um we've had trees here in zambia now for eight years we've observed absolutely no pests and disease here um at all so it's highly resilient and it has this carangin and pongamol which are furanoflavonoids which can be used as uh, termite repellents mosquito larvicide and what what pong what carangin does is it inhibits the creation of chitin, which is the uh, insect um, outer body. So it disrupts that, but it's biodegradable, of course, and doesn't build up in the environment. And it's also a bionomaticide, and it does that by maintaining high levels of ammonia in the soil by stopping the nitrification process. So you can imagine by stopping the nitrification process, you've got a slow release fertilizer cover. Yeah. How hardy are the trees? Because I know that regionally there are issues with with locusts. Can the trees actually survive being defoliated? Do they do they bounce back? Yeah. So um, we collect um, mother tree scion from from mature mother trees, and we can take many thousands in a year, and then we'll leave the tree for several years, and then yields recover. Um, and, and, and to be honest, even with a lot of plant species, you can lose up to about 40-50% of the leaf and the yield won't necessarily be hit. It's a, there's a panic about um, uh, leaf-eating pests many times. Um, and yeah, again, with the uh, carangin and the pongamol, um, we haven't specifically tested it on locusts, but we should do. Uh, what I do know is I have trees in bags. They've been in bags for over eight years there's no termites now so we don't have that problem of the tree suddenly falling over with termites which has been an issue with other species what's the the minimal rain rainfall requirement for mature uh, pongamia uh, trees to actually ensure that you get maximum yield does it does it need irrigation at the at the nursery stage yeah, so when we map the trees from which we're sourcing across the wild population, the average rainfall is 650 millimetres, but that's in a rain shadow area. So there can be periods of two or three years where there's a lot less rain. And as with all environments, there can be periods when there's more rain. 
Now, my understanding is that the wild population probably establishes, those seedlings probably establish in years where the rainfall is a little bit higher. Um, so it's advisable when you're planting out a commercial crop, either to plant in the rainy season at the beginning of it, and that way you've got a four or five month period where the tree can get embedded, after which it should be fine. In a commercial setting where you're having to plant all year, you might want to water in um, those, species, th those trees in the first year. In our mine site example, that is on tailings. It's not even soil, right? Uh, terrible hydrologic characteristics. As an insurance policy, we put 20 litres per tree per month. Um, and, and really, they don't need that. Uh, but we're doing that just because we, we, want, we want to guarantee they stay alive. Now, 20 litres per tree per month is a tiny amount of water. And what you're seeing in, um, in markets where Pongamir has taken a foothold in the US, it is the citrus growers who are shifting to Pongamir because they understand if they're having to pay for water permits, it, their crop is no longer viable, add on to that pest and disease problems um, and the price of labor for picking. Um, Pongamir can solve that by being mechanized, high pest and disease resilient, drought tolerant. Mm, I, it's, it, it's interesting. How are you going to avoid some of the pitfalls of uh, 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 of monoculture. So if Pong, uh, Pongamia is a commercially viable crop, how are you going to prevent farmers from uh, deforesting native forests and, and planting uh, Pongamia in, in, in its place? Yeah, it's very, very important. So um, there's a careful onboarding process that we've developed which requires farmers often on traditional land to have a systematic land titling from the chief. Um, and by framing that within a broader context, so we're reforesting existing agricultural land. We don't sell trees, we partner with companies worldwide and it's built into our contractual obligations that these trees will only be put onto land which can be um, uh, acceptable to carbon methodologies either voluntary or Article 6. So that's built into the contractual process. Uh, with the small-scale farmers, we assist them in getting systematic land titling. And then we try and frame that within a broader uh, carbon project, um, which would cover the um, existing forest, which is often highly fragmented. And there, the technologies Ravi's been talking about enables us to look at the fragmented landscape and not just the bulk uh, landscape of uh, forest which is remaining. So by framing it in a landscape, contractual obligations with the farmer um, and um, um, methodologies uh, that really, you know, we engage with the farmer. It's not simply us selling a tree to them and then them taking it away. It's all about um, a careful partnership uh, and that has a, a one-year onboarding process through the intercrop and the honey production. So we're working with the farmer for a year before we start to introduce the trees, and that yeah. gives us the time to filter. I think what um, I would like to answer your question, Simon, is, is really, um, it, it's the name of the game is biodiversity and the diversity of species that we bring it in. Is the sequence, what to introduce, what is the first enabler? And looking at the DNA, A, of the social sort of structure, B, the DNA in terms of the climate, the geography, the soil and everything else. And there isn't one species that can basically just occupy everywhere. And we looked at the 
in Africa in particular, we know that we have few millions of hectares immediately that are ready to be taken on and to start to, to do like that enabler. That tree that we listen to nature in that sense, this is the, the, the right tree to go into it, to start with it, but it's an enabler and it, it, it lives on symbiotic relation, being with the agriculture in that sense and being with other trees. So we have number, it's, we have a catalog of number of trees that we studied, we know which one to bring it in, but it's the sequence. And the sequence will start with the most resilient with that is needed at the moment and how we're going to, but we have a, a bank of species, we bring it in one by one, governed by the fact that we need to keep the biodiversity and we need, we are aware of the circular economy impact. So it's quite a long term. So it's not just one tree by far. Fantastic. So very briefly, just to finish off, uh, if people want to get involved with Filer Earth, buy your product, invest in your company, how do they get hold of you? Oh, um, www.filer.earth, uh, Benjamin at filer.earth, um, Harry at filer.earth, Rabbi at filer.earth. Um, so we're contactable that way and um, we're all on LinkedIn. That's, that's always a good way to, to reach us. Um, uh, and uh, I, I could show you a last slide. I think it's actually going to be the last um, in the slide pack. It's got my contact details Fantastic. on there. Fantastic. Well, we'll have those up on the uh, on the website in the next couple of days. Right. Now, I'm afraid like that time has caught up with us, ladies and gentlemen. I know some of you have still got questions to ask. Please do contact us and we will pass them on to our speakers to continue the discussion. We're going to be posting the recording of this presentation online within the next couple of days so you can revisit what our speakers have said. It just remains for me to thank the members of the FS Club for making today possible and I'd also urge you to keep an eye on our forthcoming events page for more webinars which include uh, creator consulting moving from persistent misdirected efforts to truly transformative uh, results, which is taking place on the 13th of March. Financial Centres of the World's 2023 focus on Mauritius, which is taking place on the 14th of March. Global Financial Challenges, the role of central bank digital currencies on the 15th of March. And Asia's Noodle Bowl of Trade on the 16th of March. You can catch up with all our previous webinars on YouTube or our Pizzazz uh, TV channel. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.